you have your Bibles, if you would open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Matthew 22 as well. We'll look at 1 Corinthians 10 first and then Matthew 22 later. We continue in our series of meditations by extending what we examined last Sunday on the matter of memory. To review just a little but to add to it. First of all, memory is a gift as a part of what it means to be human. We have been given the gift of memory while remaining wholly dependent on the Creator. As human beings who are creatures, we are dependent upon God. There is nothing that we have that has not been given to us, including our ability to remember. We are radically dependent. But culturally, this seems unacceptable. We prize freedom, autonomy, and individualism, when the reality is we are dependent upon one another, upon our families, upon our communities, uh, civil authorities, and so many others. But ultimately, we are dependent upon God. And for some reason, this seems to rub many the wrong way. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Our nature, our state as human beings is one of radical dependence because we are creatures. As Paul told uh, the people at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, in him we live and move and have our being. All that we have is gift, and we need to understand this. Which means, by the way, that we should not be prized for the abilities or the capacities that we have, because what we have is gift. Paul says this to the Corinthians, I mean, why are you boasting? If everything you have has been given to you by God, then, then how can you boast? Human beings are to be valued because God loves them. And he continues to care for them in the midst of joys and sorrows. To be human is to be gifted and it is to be loved by God. When it comes to the matter of memory, if one begins to lose his or her memory and thus is more dependent upon others, doesn't diminish one whit that person's humanness does not move them away from being a person. It's actually quite the opposite. It reinforces the idea that they are dependent. Somewhere in our lives we may have forgotten that. We've been independent, we feel like we are self-sufficient, and then we reach a point where we need to rely on others, and somehow we begin to feel less than human. And that's not true. One might ask, but if a person can no longer remember, if they can no longer tell their story or their history, if you wish, um, aren't they, aren't, haven't they lost something? Yes, they have lost something, but not their humanness. And they are still human beings and persons. The reality is the story is something written by God. Read Psalm 139. All of our words, everything is written in his book. I mentioned this last week. 
this is from Stanley Harwas. Long story short, we don't get to make our lives up. We get to receive them as gifts. The story that says we should have no story except the story we chose when we had no story is a lie. In other words, to say I make up my own story is a falsehood. To be human is to learn that we don't get to make up our lives because we are creatures. Christians are people who recognize that we have a father whom we can thank for our existence. Christian discipleship is about learning to receive our life as gift without regret. We are not the authors of our own stories. Our calling is to read and interpret the story that God is generously, graciously unfolding in our lives. Rather than saying with Descartes, I think, therefore I am, we should say, I am because I am created, I am dependent, gifted, and above all, loved in all circumstances and for all time. The second thing, and this is... I mentioned it last week in passing. There is external or extended memory. There is a temptation to think of memory as simply a brain function. I think we've sort of drifted away from that because people begin to talk about muscle memory. So, and that's not something that happens in your brain. It's something that's uh, in other parts of your body. When the brain fails to function as it should, then we lose certain aspects of our ability to remember but this really fails to take into account certain realities. Do you ever write yourself a note so that you can remember to do something? That is, in fact, an extension of your memory. That isn't something that's left in your brain, if you wish. It's something outside of yourself. When you get together with family or friends and you reminisce and you talk about things that happened in the past, they remind you of things you had forgotten. Therefore, they are a part of your memory that is outside of yourself. So memory has both internal, it's normally what we think, but it also has external aspects. Some of them we hold as individuals. Some of them are held for the individual by the community. That your parents remind you of things that perhaps you were too young to remember or you've forgotten. Um, yes. But ultimately, it is all held by God. There is a sense in which memory is corporate. And this leads us to the next matter to continue and will be the focus of our meditation today. We should think of memory in terms of community. In our culture, we tend to focus on the individual. We think of someone who has a great memory. He or she has a memory like an elephant, the expression goes. And unfortunately, this has spread to the church, I think, um, yeah. we should think of memory in terms of the local congregation remembering and forgetting both aspects of memory are to be practiced communally not just individually we are as God's people to remember together which requires sometimes that we remind each other of what has happened what we've prayed for what we've learned the prayers that God has answered. Now, some people are more gifted, if you wish, in the area of memory. They are a gift from God to the church. But we shouldn't put it all on the individual. It is something that, as the people of God, we are to share. Paul, or, I'm sorry, Peter wrote in his second epistle, 
So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. So he wants to remind them. I think it is right to refresh your memory, as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Remind, refresh your memory, remember these things. This is a function of the congregation of the church. We are to maintain a memory of what God has done. And as Tom mentioned during the time for prayer, oftentimes we forget after a prayer has been answered of of the fervency of the earnestness of our prayers. This is something I think it is good for us to remind one another about. But secondly, it isn't simply the church on Melrose that we are to remember among ourselves. We are, in fact, to think of memory in terms of the church at large today. I would argue that our experience of God may be, in fact, quite narrow. We need to remember that there are other Christians, there are believers, brothers and sisters around the globe today who have a very different experience of God in their life. They don't have an easy life. Some of them are facing persecution and possibly even death. I mentioned last week, in some ways one could make the analogy, we are Job before his troubles. But much of the church today is Job after his troubles. And Satan said to God, does Job fear you for nothing? You have blessed the works of his hands. We have done quite well. We do not suffer as our brothers and sisters do. We need to keep them in our memory. We need to remember them. In the same way that Ben mentioned, you know, the earthquake came and we were talking about it before the service, how they had this rolling sensation and that. and um, But for the most part, no damage. Well, that others here in California were not so fortunate. They need to be in our memory as well. We need to ask ourselves from time to time, why is it that God has given us the things that he has while others face persecution? Thirdly, we should think of memory in terms of the church and the past, remembering who God is, what he has done, requires that we have a sense of community with the believers that have gone before us. In our first hymn today, we sang, Lo, the apostolic train, join thy sacred name to hallow, prophets swell the glad refrain, and the white-robed martyrs follow, and from morn to set of sun, through the church the song goes on. It seems to me that many American Christians have little or no sense of the past, not just American history, but of the history of the church. Um, and oftentimes the memory they do have is mistaken. If we think only in terms of what God has done in our lives, our thoughts will be quite narrow and quite limited. And we might begin to think, and many do, that God can only or will only work in this particular way. The, the fact is we are part of a spectrum, and God has works in many different ways we have only experienced one or two or three of those ways in our lives. Um, In this, I think we are quite American. So I I think if I were to preach this sermon in another country, it would not necessarily make sense. Um, 
they may have in fact stronger ties to the past and stronger memories. Um, but as Americans, we tend to undervalue memory. Um, unless we begin to lose it, then suddenly it becomes really, really important. But generally, I think we tend to undervalue it. Um, a part of it is because of our history. Our, our, our nation began with this radical breach uh, from the past, the old world, if you wish. Something new came into being, a republic. As you see on your dollar bills, it tells us it is a new order of the ages. John O'Sullivan, who popularized the phrase manifest destiny, said our national birth was the beginning of a new history which separates us from the past and connects us with the future only. We have no interest in the scenes of antiquity, only as lessons of avoidance of nearly all their examples. In other words, it's almost as though what the Khmer Rouge did in Cambodia, this is year zero. This is when history begins. Well, if that's the case, then there is this curtain of sorts beyond which we are unwilling to go because we are, in fact, something new. And this idea of individualism, um, de Tocqueville said that the bond that ties generation to generation is loosened or broken. People easily lose track of the ideas of their ancestors or cease to care about them. Democratic principles from Athens mean nothing. What they ask to be shown is a picture of the present. And then there's one more thing, and this, I think, is now beginning to affect the world through globalization. Techn the technological advances um, have caused us, maybe we're not even aware of it, to think of the past and those in the past as inferior. So why would you want to remember these things? They didn't have computers, they didn't have cell phones, and it could be even more basic, they didn't have electricity. And so there's a tendency to think, the past is not important. Do you want examples of ignorance and backwardness? History is filled with them. And so people don't want to look at history because they see it as marked by backwardness. We tend in this age to have what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, a rejection or ignoring of the past, which includes, and this is important, a rejection or despising of those who have gone before. And this is what I want to be the focus of our meditation today. We should remember those who have gone before. Our first text today is here in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read the first five verses in which Paul writes some rather amazing things. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Consider, Paul calls them brothers. And if you've read through 1 Corinthians, I'm not sure. It would be very difficult for me to refer to these people as brothers and sisters. But Paul is right. For all their failings, they are in fact his brothers in Christ. 
Secondly, he refers to the Israelites in the wilderness as our forefathers. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation. He's not writing to people in Jerusalem, a Jewish congregation. This is a Gentile congregation. And yet he sees a connection. They are our forefathers. He understands that the Israelites have symbolically been baptized and they have participated in the Lord's Supper. There's something else. The Corinthians know this stuff. Okay? So when he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact that something you find throughout 1 Corinthians, he's not giving them new information. Rather, he's giving them a new perspective on what they know. They knew the data, if you wish. They didn't understand the significance or the importance of it. Why bring this up at all? We'll look at verse number 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Nevertheless, for all the privilege they had, they, that is most of the Israelites, failed to obtain the prize, Canaan. God was not pleased with them as is evidenced by the fact that their bodies are scattered in the desert. Verse number six is key to what Paul is trying to say. He wants to remind them they need to remember what happened to Israel. He presents Israel as an example to keep, as he says, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. What did Israel do and what should be avoided? He mentions the golden calf. He doesn't say golden calf, by the way, but when he talks about that they... um, sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is from Exodus. This is what happened with the golden calf. Then the incident recounted in Numbers 25 at the Bale of Peor in which 23,000 died in one day. Let me read to you the part of the account. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. Sexual immorality in this case is tied to eating in the presence of a false god, as was the case with the golden calf. The third incident comes when Israel complained to God about manna. It's the same stinking thing every day, every day, manna. They tested the Lord and the Lord sent snakes among them. And then the fourth incident is when they grumbled about Moses as their leader, about his leadership. The result is that the households of the three ringleaders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, were swallowed up when the earth opened up. 250 men who challenged Aaron's leadership were consumed by fire. And then people complained about what happened to those guys. They blamed Moses and Aaron for that, and 14,700 of them were killed. Why is Paul telling the Corinthians this? They know this stuff. They know this information. It is as a warning. They need to remember 
to keep them from setting their hearts on evil things. So let's ask ourselves, who are those who have come before us? I would break them into two groups. The first are those who are our brothers and sisters found in Scripture. And this would include those that Paul has written about in our text. But the others that are mentioned in Scripture as well. Of necessity, this means our Christian faith is rooted in history. And history is a remembered past. It is a remembering of what has happened in the past. I would suggest to you that all people are historians, perhaps not trained or professional, but it is something that we all do. Everyone knows some history. They remember some things. Even when people say, much to my chagrin as a history professor, that they don't like history, they fail to understand what history is. It is a remembering, a remembered past. More than that, history is a form of conversation. It is a conversation that takes place in the present about the past. That's what's happening right now in this sermon as we look back to what is written in Scripture. But there's also a conversation in the present with the past, those who have gone before. We enter in a conversation with the past through the study of Scripture. It is the primary source for us. But when reading Scripture, as as well as reading any historical document, there is always a temptation to see the document before us, even Scripture, Holy Scripture, as nothing more than a source of information. So as Zib read to us today about the the Gadarene demoniac and he had a legion of demons in him and then the 2,000 pigs and all that, if we're not careful, we simply begin to think of this as numbers or figures, stick figures. Um, Because I knew what was coming in the sermon, as Zib read, I tried to picture what was this man like? This man who was bruised and cut and living in the tombs possessed by demons. It's not simply, this isn't simply a story to tell us how powerful Jesus was that he cast out the demons. It does do that. But it is a story about this man and how Jesus cast out demons and freed him from that. If we begin to read scripture and history as well, we will abandon, I think, such a utilitarian mindset where we simply use information, use the people that we read about to make a point today. We want to win an argument, and so we say, yeah, in such and such a year, such and such happened, and it proves my point now, rather than seeing them as real human beings. One historian put it this way, the ultimate purpose of historical inquiry is not the establishment of certain objective facts but in the encounter with living beings. These were real human beings. And when we read scripture, when we read about people in scripture, whether as a congregation, the Corinthian church, for example, or individuals, the demoniac that Zib read about, we should listen. We should listen and hear them as human beings. Mentioned this last week. Um, the goal of the historian is to make a relationship with the dead, those who have gone before us. 
our conversation partners are real human beings. We would do well to remember that. So, those who have gone before us, those in scripture, but since the canon was completed, those who are in the story or the history of the church. And this is where people might get a bit nervous because it brings up the T word, tradition. Being children of the Reformation, we hold to sola scriptura, only the scripture. That is, in the ma- it is the final authority with regard to doctrine, not the church and not tradition. But it doesn't mean that we are to cut ourselves off from the history, the story of the church, or the traditions of the church. Simply put, they are to be remembered. By the way, you only have to read the reformers, and John Calvin comes to mind, to find that they repeatedly quoted from the church fathers. They didn't see themselves as starting something new. They saw themselves in continuity. I think we would do well to learn from them. How are we supposed to remember those who came before us? I would suggest three things that are necessary. The first is love. The second is discernment. And the third is humility. Our goal should not be to use these people to make an argument for our own purposes. Rather, we should view them with love. And here we come to our second text. If you would, turn to Matthew 22. It is, I suspect, a very familiar passage in which Jesus is asked, what, are the greatest, what is the greatest commandment? Beginning in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I would suggest to you that those who have gone before us, we are to love them. Those that we read of in scripture, those in church history, we are to love them. But how do we do this? Well, first of all, I think it begins by noticing them. Okay? By acknowledging that they were human beings who are revealed in sources, history books, those in scripture are revealed in scripture and we listen we notice them and then we listen carefully to them and respectfully we respect their perspective we may not agree with them but they're human beings and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. we should be open to learning from them again doesn't require that we agree with them but it does require that we take the time to listen and try to understand their point of view. We should not be condescending, sort of reading something and rolling your eyes like, oh yeah, whatever. This person missed the boat completely. The reality is we might actually learn something from them. I think something that would be helpful here is for us to consider how we want people to remember us. The Lord does not return in 50 years, 100 years. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want people to remember that you were a human being? With gifts, but also with failings? Do you want people to see you as contributing to the story? 
of God's people. Do you want them to recognize that you were not perfect? Not, a, not everything we did or everything we said is to be followed. It's, it's one of the troubling things right now in our country where people are tearing down statues because they found out that certain people in the past did bad things, as though this is a great revelation to them. If we are human beings, we are made in the image of God, there is something unique about us, but we're also fallen. And so, do we make mistakes? Have we done things we shouldn't have done? Absolutely. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want people to sort of roll their eyes or just dismiss you because of something you may have done in your life? We are, in fact, to love those who have gone before us. As I mentioned earlier, one of the problems in this age is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. An argument that the thinking, the art, the science of an earlier time is of necessity inferior to the present, simply because of temporal priority. The older, the less advanced it is. When you come to the present, we are more advanced than anyone who has come before us. So early people, not only earlier times, but the people of earlier times are seen as less intelligent. An example of this, by the way, is to use the word medieval. When you say medieval, people automatically think backward, dark ages. But we are to love them. At the same time, we are to have discernment. Because love without discernment can lead us astray. It may sound contradictory, but we have to combine our love for our neighbors, those who have come before us, with a measure of skepticism and suspicion. We need to resolve that we will not take everything they say automatically at face value. We have to determine if what they said and what they did was in fact Right. We can question, we can listen with respect, but we can question, but we treat them with respect. This is something I think that is difficult for us as Americans, because we tend not to be very good at constructive disagreement, in part because we've had very little practice at it. Technology allows us to isolate ourselves in like-minded communities. So our thinking skills, our skills of listening to those of different opinions with respect, considering what they say, and then perhaps saying, no, that's not correct because you put forward your argument. We simply don't do this because we sort of, even on the Internet, we sort of just hang out with the people who think the way that we do. We lose the ability to either persuade or to learn from those who see the world differently. If somebody disagrees with us on some point, then we dismiss them, failing to recognize that they might be wrong about nine out of ten things, but that tenth thing might be something that we can learn from them. I would say that Christian thinking requires that we think critically. Christian memory requires that we think critically. 
that we think about those that we are in conversation with, those in scripture, those in the past, in church history, those who have gone before us. As we remember them, as we are engaged with them, we in fact must think critically. How do they speak to us? Well, indirectly we see uh, their values, their beliefs, if you wish, through the stories that they told, the laws they enacted, the prayers they recorded, the wars they fought, the diaries they kept, and much more. Directly they speak to us, though, through literature, through the books that they wrote, through sermons, through tracts, speeches. Here they make definite declarations. One thing I think we've lost sight of that we need to recover is the importance of story. One could make the case that there are at least two positions regarding church history in the church today. One is liberal, one is conservative. And I would say that the reason for the liberal rejection of the past or ignoring of the past involves both chronological snobbery, which I've mentioned, but also a rejection of what the church once believed. The church used to believe this, we no longer do, so we will ignore that part of church history. New doctrines are correct, old doctrines are cast aside. But in doing so, they have missed the importance of story, of a narrative. One writer put it this way, good and just societies require a narrative, which helps them know the truth about existence and fight against the constant temptation to self-deception. We can, in fact, learn from those, even if we might see them as being wrong, we might imagine ourselves to be superior to them. We can still learn from them. The story for those who reject the past, by the way, and reject tradition, is that there is, in fact, no story at all, except the story which they have told. This is year zero. This is when the church begins. It begins with us in our new understanding of Scripture. In doing so, they have failed to love their neighbors as themselves. What about conservatives? Well, I think we are much stronger believers in church history and church tradition, but I would argue that we tend to see them as things to be used. If we want to make an argument, we want to quote them and say that John Owen said this or John Calvin said this, Martin Luther, and we don't think of them as human beings. And we don't love them as our neighbors. We do not love them. You might be wondering, what is he going on and on about today? It's a meditation on memory. And I would argue that the communal nature of remembering of memory consists of three circles of learning. The local congregation, the church at large today, and the church in the past. But it begins with the local congregation. If we do not remember each other and each other's burdens and joys, sorrows, the whole nine yards, if we do not remember that, I think we will not be in a good position to remember globally. And if we don't do that, then we're certainly not going to remember those who have come before us. The key is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your brothers and sisters as yourself. That's why Paul can call these, these messed up Corinthians, it's like, what is wrong with these people? He calls them brothers because, in fact, he loved them. 
The key is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, beginning here in this congregation. Here is where we develop that ability, that skill. And then by God's grace, it goes out to our brothers and sisters around the globe today. And then it goes beyond that to our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Love is one of the keys. Another one is humility. It is in remembering that we should be humbled. If nothing else, if I could put it that way, at the grace that God has shown his people. It is amazing that the church has survived for all these centuries. Also, the work of God in the lives of his people throughout history. We may shake our heads at some of the crazy things they did. We may roll our eyes at some of the things that they said. But we should marvel in great humility that God was able to use them. Would we not say the same thing about ourselves today? That it is the grace of God that for all our foolishness, all our self-centeredness, God is somehow able to work through us. And to recognize that the God they worship is the God we worship. We may see in them a faithfulness that puts us to shame. We may stand up and say, well, boy, they were wrong about all these doctrinal points. And I would say, I agree with you. But they walked with God and they were faithful and they were obedient to the light they were given. We should be humbled by that. The reality is in remembering, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. It means remembering locally, globally, and historically. Otherwise, we will just be these self-centered individuals who are affected or infected by presentism, that this moment in time is all that matters. No, memory is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. We should take that to heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the gift of memory. As with the rest of our being, it is fallen. Sometimes we remember things we wish we could forget. Other times we drift into sentimentality and nostalgia. But it is a gift you've given us. And it isn't simply for our own use, for our own consumption. As brothers and sisters, as part of a family, it is something we are to share we are to remember together in this congregation, but beyond the walls of this church, to our brothers and sisters in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world. Unless we get stuck in the present moment, we should also remember with our brothers and sisters who came before us. We should think of them as they are, human beings made in your image, fallen, no doubt, but redeemed by your grace. 
They are part of our family. We are brothers and sisters together. We can learn from them as we hope by your grace others can learn from us. May we be as gracious and generous toward them as you have been toward us. And may we come to see that memory is not something we keep to ourselves, but that we share. Because we are not merely individuals, we are part of a family. Something we so easily forget. May we think on these things, meditate on them in the days to come. Give us understanding by your Spirit. And now as we leave this place today, may your Spirit and your grace go with us. Keep us safe this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.